Hello, everyone. Welcome to Teaching Matters, a podcast produced by WOUB Public Media in Athens, Ohio. I'm your host, Scott Titsworth, Dean of the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. One of the topics that I think if you follow not only education, but but more importantly, the broader national landscape that has come to a lot of our attention um, in recent years is the issue of unconscious bias. I'm happy to have um, uh, joining remotely into the studio today, Tracy A. Benson, who is the co-author of a book titled Unconscious Bias in Schools, A Developmental Approach to Exploring Race and Racism. He and his co-author, Sarah Fearman, published this book under the imprint of Harvard Education Press. And of course, we'll have a link to the book in the text accompanying the podcast. Tracy, thank you so much for being on Teaching Matters. Great. Thank you so much for having me today, Scott. This is a very important topic that myself and my co-author, Sarah Fireman, are very passionate about, and we feel uh, this is an opportunity for us to share our work widely and hopefully get more attention to addressing racial bias in schools. Absolutely. And, and you know, one of the reasons that um, I was really excited to have you come on and talk about this is, um, you know, first of all, I, I, you know, you and I met each other about 45 seconds ago. <laughs> but, you know, I think this is a topic of, of such importance that people like you and I, when we meet each other, have to be able to have honest and open conversation in order to really bring to light what needs to be brought to light through dialogue about what the topic of unconscious bias is, how it affects all of us, um, some people in different ways than others. But it's a really important topic. So I was excited to, you know, have you come on uh, because one of the things that I really appreciated about the book is that um, I don't know if you would use this word, but I was as I was reading it, I felt like I was not only learning something, but there was practical things in there that I should understand if I want to be a part of this dialogue. So I'm excited to talk about those things with you. I guess to get started, I don't want to make assumptions that listeners truly, you know, have thought about what unconscious bias means. And you approach it both from a personal standpoint, but also from an academic and an activist standpoint. I wonder if you could talk about your definition of unconscious bias to start. Right. Well, thank you for asking that question, because there's a lot of uh, sort of current literature and studies out there out about implicit bias or unconscious bias or what is you know this bias really um, and so for the purposes of our work we define it in a very particular way and our definition is unconscious racial bias are learned beliefs attitudes and stereotypes about a particular race that result in harmful or preferential treatment of members of that race Right. And so we, we, we don't differentiate between whether this is uh, explicit uh, explicit racism or like unintentional racism. Unconscious racial bias is racism in itself because it is learned behaviors over time. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's more of an automaticity and sort of acceptance of the type of of racial biases that we have towards certain groups, which preferences typically members of the white community and dis uh, and 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 does not preference members of the black and brown and minority communities. And this is something that's been learned over time, manifests itself in a number of different ways, um, in business, in medicine, in policing, and of course, in schools. And the reason that we find this um, this topic to be so pertinent and important about, uh, about addressing it in schools is because if you actually want to see a society that looks different and, and is more uh, racially literate and is able to have these conversations in an open and honest way, we need to start in our schools with our teachers and with our students because our teachers educate the next generation of citizens. And so if we do not address these issues in schools and help our children become racially literate and able to have open and honest conversations, we're going to continue to replicate the society that has a tough time talking about issues of race and racism. Yeah. And I, and I guess it's important, you know, um, to say that, you know, 
arguably, there have been moments in time in, in our country's culture, uh, more recently um, in the last you know 75 years, where we've taken up the issue of conscious racism and tried to say we do not want to perpetuate that arguable, but, but, but if we accept that, but I don't know that, you know, we've ever thought about that from an unconscious standpoint. I, I also really, um, found it meaningful that you use the word automaticity, because I think that's something that every educator can relate to because we've all taken an ed psych class where we've learned about, you know, behavioral learning and the issue of automaticity. And I don't know that I would have ever thought about using that label for a word related to sort of a cognitive predisposition, but man, it, it fits well, doesn't it? It does. It does. And then when we step back and think about all the racialized messaging we get throughout our life from birth all the way through to adulthood, there's many different places where we get this messaging. We get it through our families in which, you know, if we, mm-hmm. our families teach us what, which is the preferred racial group by who our parents are friends with, who they socialize with. We learn it through media. And there's a ton of research out there about how uh, how people of color are portrayed in the media, media in very stereotypical ways. Mm-hmm. We learn it from our friend group, you know, with our friend group, whether we do or do not talk about race and who we keep as friends. And even in something just as innocuous as going to the grocery store. Um, if we actually take a time, and I recommend this to everyone that I, uh, that I talk in front of, is take a moment when you go either go to the department store or go to the grocery store, is take a look around and see which races are, are represented most often in grocery stores, not the people walking around, but on packaging, on advertisement. Mm-hmm. It's overwhelmingly white. And one of the specific examples that I use is going to the greeting card section. So most stores, like your, your local Walgreens or CVS, has a greeting card section. And if you take a look at the majority of the greeting cards, they have white people or white caricatures on them. And then the, in recent years, in the, in the mid-90s, there was a, a, a greeting card company called Mahogany that created uh, cards for specifically for black and brown people that can be found in most stores on the lower right co- right-hand corner corner sort of segregated from the other cards and so we've always taken this as something that's normal because it, it's we've seen it and we, we see it as something like oh we have now have cards for black and brown people but if you really mm-hmm. think about what that represents about our society is that why is it that the normal card companies don't have cards with black and brown faces on them right right why does it have to be segregated there into the bottom corner just specifically for black and brown people and if you think even more deeply about that why it doesn't exist is because white people don't want brown faces on their greeting cards so you've been a school teacher and assistant principal and a principal and now you're um, an assistant professor at unc charlotte using that same uh, thought process that you just went through in talking about common things like going to a department store, how, how do these issues of unconscious bias um, make their way into educational settings? Oh, in so many ways, in so many ways, because most of us live very segregated lives in which we have the, what we learn about other racialized racial communities is basically through media, through other sources mm-hmm. where we don't have a lot of interpersonal contact. And so we form these biases outside in our, in, in the world, and then we bring them into schools. And so there's one study um, that we don't use in the book, but we talk about frequently during our talks. And this is a study on um, how teachers uh, grade students. And so what the study uh, entailed is that there's a group of teachers who were gathered to rate a uh, student writing sample. Mm-hmm. And e- every teacher was given this poorly written essay to then give feedback on and grade. 
And what the the uh, teachers didn't know is that the the essay did not come from students. It actually was developed by researchers. So they all got the same essay, and they were given the the, the essay and asked to one give feedback on the essay to the student, and also give the the, the essay a grade so that it can help students improve their students improve their writing. And the only thing that was different about each of the writing samples was the name. Mm-hmm. So either the name was a white sounding name that could be associated with a white student or a black or Latino name that could be associated with a black or Latino student. And what the researchers found is that when the, um, the teacher was giving back uh, uh, feedback to a white student, they tended to give more uh, critical comments and a lower grade if they thought the student was white. But if they started thought the student was of color, they typically gave them less critical comments, more positive comments, and a higher grade. So what does this tell us? Mm. This tells us that, that one, racial bias is very, very insidious, very, very uh, innocuous in terms of where we locate it. If you didn't know about the study, you wouldn't know that this happens. But what does this do to our students? It teaches white students that mediocre work, yes, is mediocre, and you should do better. I'm going to give you a lot of critical comments and a lower grade because you can do better. But what it tells the black and brown students is that mediocre is the best you can do. It's acceptable, yeah. It's acceptable. And this, so, and this type of behavior towards students, even though it could be unconscious from the teacher, this is how low expectations work their way into the classrooms and actually undereducate students of color, even if, if they're sharing the same classroom space with white students. So, Tracy, as, as somebody that you know has worked with a lot of teachers and a lot of different venues, have you started to develop suppositions as to why teachers would approach their students of color in that way? You know, is is it out of fear? Is it out of just, I mean, I, I don't know if there's an explanation for it that you've discovered, but, but you know, that that's part of understanding why it happens in order to be able to, you know, prevent it. So have you, have you come to any, um, you know, thoughts about why teachers might, you know, have different expectations that are actually lower for students of color? Well, these are residuals. Mm-hmm. These are residuals of our long history of racism in our country. We forget that from 1619 to 1865, uh, it was actually illegal for black and brown people to be educated in this country because mm-hmm. of slavery. Mm-hmm. This was, And also during that time, it was legal to do things to black people that you can't even do to a dog today. You can mm-hmm. kill, rape, sell, traffic, and any, any way you want to. Uh, act any way you want to, the white population towards black people with no recourse. And so that type of inhumanity for 246 years, and even after slavery ended, we still had Jim Crow segregation for another 89 years, Mm -hmm. where we subjected black and brown populations to substandard conditions, including schooling at the interest of white people. And then, you know, if you think about the, the, the actually ending of legalized uh, racial oppression being 1965, the civil rights movement, this is, you know, nearly 300 something odd years where blacks were legally subjugated. And then after that, uh, we have about what, 1965 until today is not that much time, 50 something odd years. Yeah. So we have hundreds of years of this legalized subjugation of black and brown people. And now it's only been 55 years since black populists have been legally free. This mentality has been passed down through generations. And mm-hmm. we can't think just because we outlaw racial segregation that this type of mentality towards how black and brown people aren't as worthy, aren't as human, aren't as intelligent, does not have residuals today. And so it carries on, our legacy carries on. It's going to take possibly just as long for us to address racial inequities as mm. it took for us to get here in the first place. Hmm. Sobering. Um, and, and when you put it like that, early in the book, um, 
you all talk about the racist, non-racist binary. What, what do you mean by that? Because, and, and the reason I ask the question is, as, as a white male, you know, I, I want to wear a flag that says I'm not racist. And I get the sense that you all would say that's not the right question or answer that we should be asking. Yeah, yeah. And this is at the heart of our book, the, the good, non-racist, bad, racist binary. And we know that that the good people with good intentions want should have an aspiration to be not racist. That is, so everyone should have the aspiration to be, I am free of racism, I'm free of racial bias. That's a great aspiration. But what we do know is from the lifetime of exposure to racial bias in our society, that's an actual impossibility. Not even people of color, being a person of color does not make us impervious to ingesting racial bias about mm-hmm. people who look like us. So it, it infects everyone. Mm-hmm. And so when we understand this binary as the, the good, you know, good non-racist, bad racist binary, actually there is no binary. We all lie on a continuum of, of racial identity development in realizing how much we have ingested racial bias and how that impacts others in society. So we've all ingested these racialized imagery, this racialized messaging, and there is no binary in terms of the good, the bad, bad racist and the good non-racist. We're all on a continuum. And what does this help us do? They help us, one, in terms of folks who want to help others be you know, less racist. We see maybe overt racism or folks who have racist, um, <clears throat> racist beliefs. We, we need to see them as learners on a continuum, just as we are. And we can't go around you know, um, uh, just pointing out folks who have overt racism and say, we're not them, you're a bad racist, I'm not going to interact with you. That's not a way to progress. We have to see them as learners just as we are. And then also internally... We have to see ourselves as uh, people who are on our own racialized journey. That we aren't. We can't stamp ourselves with "I am a non-racist." Hence, I have no. Uh, I have no learning to do. Everyone has learning to do, and when we show mm-hmm. up in spaces, especially white people who want to believe that they are, I am a, a good, a good non-racist. We want folks to show up in these spaces and understanding that they're a learner and not being afraid to really say their true feelings and thoughts and learn to be challenged instead of being afraid and uh, and, uh, and um, subscribing to the status quo and being afraid to share their real feelings, hence it cuts off real learning. When you talk about it as being a continuum, um, I would assume that one of the implications of that is that, you know, you're the two of you are essentially making an argument that racism is not a fixed binary. And I totally agree with that. I mean, very few things in life are binary. Um, and, and, and this is certainly one of them. If it's a continuum, the way that you describe a developmental continuum, which I uh, align to that, I think it's a great way of describing it. It's also possible that a person would be moving, you know, in the direction of that continuum away from the unconscious biases that they have, but that because life intervenes, they could retreat at times, right? I mean, that that we're not fixed on that continuum or always moving in one direction. By virtue of it being a developmental continuum, we have to relearn every once in a while. Would you agree with that? Uh, correct. You know, that's why we name our book a developmental approach, yeah. you know, because just as you can move up on the continuum with greater levels of understanding, if if folks continually engage in conversation about race and racism and read and listen to podcasts and and engage in conversations very deeply in terms of the close, personal and immediate about how their role 
uh, plays into reducing racial bias and are really steeped in the work that the continuum, they, people can progress on the continuum as far as their their way of um, understanding how it pertains to them. But if we participate in these discussions and we make a lot of progress, you know, over the course of months, even years, but then we shut off and say, all right, my work is done here. We can easily go back into the society, which we know is steeped in racialized imagery. That imagery is always at play. Yeah. And it will then cause us to slide backwards in sort of our development in our thinking. Yeah. One of the other, um, so there's several nuggets in the book. We probably won't have time for me to ask you about all of them, but I was r- reading a section um, that was uh, subtitled The Emotional Drain, but you were essentially talking about the emotional labor that you as a black man have, have has went through in having racialized discussions um, with others. Can you talk about that emotional labor in the way that you describe it and, and how that has sort of impacted you? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an emotional tax. You know, the, the, how people use the term, I'm, I'm woke, you know, that I am <laughs> in the know, that I am a person who understands racism very deeply. That comes at a cost, especially to people of color. Because once you see, you can't unsee. And then you're not only uh, experiencing the world as a person of color, but then you also have to then engage in conversations with, with especially white people who then don't understand the ways in which they challenge your personal perspective mm-hmm. is, uh, is an attack on your humanity as mm-hmm. a person. Um, point in case, when I do uh, speaking events around the country, when I do trainings, um, at the end of the training, there's always an open forum for folks just to share their their learnings and beliefs mm-hmm. at the very end of the session. And everyone, and it's typically in multiracial settings where there are equal number of you know white people as there are people of color. But every time, without fail, when it comes to the point in which folks need to share their learnings and how they have felt about the session and be open and vulnerable, it is consistently led by by um, brown people. Whether mm-hmm. mainly black and brown women who are one who experience racism very deeply throughout their lives, but then also are charged because white people are either afraid of afraid of, of participating, nervous, um, the, the typical I don't know what to say, so I'm not going to say anything. Mm-hmm. Do not engage in a way so they put the problem of racism, which racism is not a problem of people of color. <laughs> racism is a white person problem. It's a problem of whiteness, and so the only people that could really relieve the pressures of racism are white people, but yet in these conversations, black and brown people are charged with carrying the load along with experiencing these things in the, in the society every day. Mm-hmm. So hypothetically, if I'm at a, if I'm a school principal and I um, start to learn about unconscious bias, I go into school at the start of the year, have my faculty, uh, initial faculty meeting where I talk about my objectives for the year. And I say, our school is going to be colorblind because we don't want this to happen. What's your reaction to that? Uh, that's a that's a great you know again the the concept of colorblindness is a great aspiration. That's a fantastic. If we no longer needed to use racialized identifiers, that is uh, it could be a great aspiration for our world, for our country. But we do know that we do see race, and if we if we make if we if we um, claim that we are somehow colorblind, we don't see color. We're then um, uh, silencing the conversation around how racial bias does work in our schools. And we don't make it possible to talk about things in terms of race. Hence, racism is going to infect everything we do within school. So rape, so colorblindness is a great aspiration. But, it's, and it, but until folks stop experiencing the world in a racialized way, <laughs> we can't stop talking about race. Mm-hmm. 
So what does bravery mean in this context? It was a topic um, that was taken up in chapter four of the book. Um, if, if, if you and I say, you know, collectively that Scott and, and Tracy are going to be brave in having a conversation with each other and in providing leadership for the people that we work with, what does that mean in this context? Well, that, that means that we have to um, actually not be, be colorblind or color meat. We have to be color brave. Um, and, and later on in our book, we talk about specific strategies about um, really investigating how racial bias shows up in the school, but without actually naming race, that if there's a particular discrepancy in data, that we say, one, there's a difference between the black students and the white student in this particular area, that we actually name race. Mm-hmm. And if we're planning on implementing a strategy to then address it, we want to say it and name it about one, why we're implementing it and what the population we're talking about and not using um, uh, coded language such as, you know, cultural competency, or we're going to have a cultural night or, you know, culture is very popular or we want to be a diverse and equitable and equitable school. That's great in terms of general sense. But if if we're talking about black and brown people, black, Mm -hmm. Hispanic, Southeast Asian, Native American people, we want to name it so that we can talk openly about the, these dynamics, because if we're using coded language all the time, we're not able to be as specific in terms of what populations we're talking about. Mm-hmm. So, so in terms of, do, do you think that bravery also in this context, I mean, obviously it's going to be different uh, depending upon what your positionality is. So if you are a black student, bravery would mean one thing for you. If you are a white teacher, it would mean another thing for you and so on and so forth. Um, how do you see those, those dynamics of bravery shifting from one positionality to another? And then, you know, how can I, I be brave and you be brave at the same time so that, that our collective bravery elevates ourselves and those around us? Does that question make sense to you? It does. It does. And, and our first chapter is, you know, starting, you know, starting with ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that that goes to this question about what bravery means. And so depending on your racial racial designation and your racial identity development, we have different fears when we come into conversations about race. And one of the most prominent fears um, around um, when white people show up in this space to talk about race, one of the prominent fears is saying the wrong thing mm-hmm. and being seen as a racist. And to be brave, we have to relinquish that fear and say, I'm a learner. And I'm going to show up and I may say the wrong thing. And I may say something that may be offensive to people of color, but I have to allow myself to be a learner and then qualify that, yes, I may have said something wrong, but I have to have the humility to say that at least I'm trying. And as a person of color, especially black women, um, there's a trope around the angry black woman. And when, when, especially when it comes to talking about race and being, you know, uh, and challenging a white person on their their perspectives around race and racism, mm-hmm. and so that is in terms of bravery around black women about being seen as an angry black woman if you're oppositional to to the white population. That's another uh, another aspect of their personal identity and forming how they have to be brave and how they have to show up in the conversation. Mm-hmm. So getting to a real practical standpoint, um, you know, there's a lot of teachers that listen to the podcast for obvious reasons, but, you know, I kind of feel like when I work with my faculty here and, and we talk about um, all of those things that you said, we want to be an inclusive environment. We want to, you know, be welcome and opening um, and embracing of students, regardless of the background. I mean, we say all those things, right? I mean, so I totally, I totally empathize with um, the things you were saying because, you know, we say them here. I think every, every, every institution does that. Um, to get beyond that, though, I think that we have to have conversations with faculty uh, and with students about, you know, what are our behaviors going to be in the classroom? So, you know, yourself in 
you know, your academic position and the consulting and, and workshops that you do, what are some of the practical things that you tell teachers so that they can start to become more self-aware um, as teachers um, so that they can start to actually doing things that actually does create a, a inclusive environment that lifts up all students you know, equitably, you know, what are, what are some of the advice points that you give to teachers as they're trying to, um, you know, move down that continuum? Right, right. Thank you for that question. So this book, it, we very intentionally organize it. Chapters one through five are all about the cognitive and mindsets of going into this work. We have to be prepared to go away. We have to normalize talking about race. We have to know our triggers and how we show up. We have to cultivate a brave community. And we have to realize that white comfort is something that we often default to in talking about race. We want to keep white people comfortable and not having to wrestle and grapple with the fact that they have ingested racism. And we have to get beyond that to be a brave community. Now, after we've done these several steps of sort of making our school ready to then engage these conversations, then in the classroom, uh, there are specific strategies that we recommend. Um, and one is uh, observing, having someone or you're yourself observing your classroom through a racialized lens. Mm -hmm. And so I, I teach a course in supervision of instruction to aspiring principals. And every semester I have them do one specific observation of a classroom based on race and gender, meaning looking for race and gender differences within the classroom. Because the, 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 the primary, the foundation of understanding how to then investigate race, uh, race and gender differences is understanding that uh, it does exist. It's not if it exists, it's a question of where. Mm -hmm. And we have to find it. So one of the things I require my students to do and go is go in and observe the classroom through a racialized lens. And 100% of my students, every time this happens, every I've been teaching this course for three years now, always find patterns along race and gender lines. Mm, yeah. And meaning that in, in, the, in my most previous case, in my class was just yesterday, was one of my students uh, observed, the, the, observed their hallway procedures in terms of the entrance procedures and noticed that, that, there, that there are three black staff members who staff the, the front table and then there are two uh, white staff members who staff the door. And when students come through the door, the black and brown, the black staff members address every student pretty much in the same way. Good morning, good afternoon, come on in, make sure that you your phone, yada, yada, yada. But then the two white staff members were only addressing the Latino and the white students, completely ignoring the black male students who were coming into school. Hmm. And so this is something, unless you looked for it, you wouldn't know what's going on. It's training yourself to be aware of of seeing and, and knowing when you're experiencing it, because, of course, that's what has to happen for it to no longer be unconscious, right? Yeah, it's looking for it. It's looking for the impacts. Like, what am I actually doing? It exists. I've ingested racial bias. So, how does it manifest itself in my classroom? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The the last area that I wanted to talk with you about. Um, so, my my background, as I'm, as you maybe have have uh, gathered from when we met earlier, um, is is in the field of communication, um, which, of course, you know, like many fields, is trying to interrogate issues of of unconscious bias and the way from our perspective that it plays out in day-to-day in -day, um, interactions. There was a section in the book, um, it was actually table 9-1 um, on page 160 of the book where you talk about language of complaint versus language of commitment and then also language of blame versus language of personal responsibility. Um, 
listeners should look at this table. I should get the book and look at the table because I found it very fascinating. But of course, I'm pre-sensitized to, you know, my, my communication alarm bell went off going, that's important, you know, because of that. But can you talk about what you mean by those different um, sort of language categories and why you think it's so important um, to be able to move from one side of that continuum to the other um, along those dimensions? Right. Um yeah, so it's it's very important to realize that uh, we, we must have an asset framing in terms of this work. An asset framing towards a, a movement of commitment. Mm-hmm. Um, so we want to sort of be generative and draw draw more attention to our ability to do the work rather than talking about what we can't do. And when we are frustrated in the process of when we go into the process of investigating for racial bias and we and we find that it does exist and we experience the feelings of like oh my gosh i can't believe i've been doing this we have to change it to a a language of i am so happy that I, it's unfortunate that this was happening but i am very blessed and happy that i have sort of discovered these biases in my practice because now i can't do anything about the past practice of the students i've already affected but I, what i can do is moving forward create a more equitable experience within my classroom now that i know and can identify and mm-hmm. change my practice to address these racial biases i just really appreciated it because i know that you know as a as an academic leader i'm i'm trying to always find ways that I can have conversations with students and faculty about this issue. And I know that faculty tell me that they're trying to understand how they can have conversations about um, these issues with their students and and colleagues from around the country. Um, And what I loved about this chapter and this table is it lets you start thinking about what are the ways that I can proactively think about my language use in ways that will open dialogue rather than put up a bunch of um, roadblocks to dialogue. I really appreciated that. And, you know, it was one of those places in the book where I'm like, okay, I learned something right there that I can start using today, you know, and that that's super important. And I just really appreciated it. Well, thank you. I mean, we, we try to be as intentional as possible in this in this chapter because there's a there's great um, a speaker and academic of the Trabian Shorters who has a great workshop on asset framing. Mm-hmm. And and in asset based framing and in education, we're so used to and accustomed to definite definite deficit views and deficit right. framing. You know, just the, the term achievement gap or school to prison pipeline draws up negative connotations in your mind. So, how do we describe populations of students in a way that we give them assets? Because nowhere else in life do we describe individuals by their sort of their, their worst characteristic. You know, we talk about low income students. Now, they have a lot of other characteristics that are positive. But we describe them as low-income students. So how do we asset frame so that we see these students in a positive life just mm-hmm. through our language? So um, getting back to just a slightly bigger picture. So, uh, you know, assuming that that schools, um, you know, want to start trying to uh, approach this topic with their faculty, staff, and, and student um, population, um, you know, this isn't the type of thing where you can you know, hire you to come in and do one speech, you know, to an assembly and you're done with it, right? I mean, this has to be an intentional, ongoing, thoughtful process. What are some examples of, of schools or districts or um, units um, that, in, in your opinion, they have developed a, a planful strategy for having a long-term commitment uh, to addressing um, unconscious bias, um, racial biases um, that are present um, in their classrooms, and trying to get and you know trying to move away from those. You know, what are some you know shining stars that you would hold up? 
Well, we talk about one particular school within our book, Capital City Charter School um, in D.C., and they uh, did, did a lot of this work in terms of building conscious and awareness raising in school prior to engaging into the, into the work. Mm-hmm. And so these are leaders who had already enough dexterity around understanding race, racism, racial bias to then lead the work themselves. However, our recommendation is you hire uh, those who specialize in the particular work. So when I was a principal, and I talk about this in the book, uh, when I was a principal, before I went to my doctoral program, um, I wanted to engage in racial equity work. But I knew that I didn't at the time have enough knowledge or, uh, or the dexterity to lead these conversations myself or to engage my staff in the conversations. And so I hired an outside provider, Multicultural Bridge, to come in and, and work on this side by side so I could build my skill in, in dexterity with having these conversations and then translate that into tangible action about things that we we're going to do within the school. So my one capital city charter school, they did it well because they had leaders who were very steeped and understood the process of getting staff ready and then making tangible change. However, in terms of my work and also work that those who are like me do is that is is that we recommend a, a very clear partnership where we put a lot of time, money, energy, and resources, and we make this an important part of our school and district um, plan that it's a way that over the course of a year or several years, we're able to educate ourselves in a way that we can sustain change within the school and the school district. So, Tracy, I, I so appreciate uh, the time that you've um, afforded um, us for this interview today. And I want to extend an ongoing invitation that if, if you would like to come back on ever and uh, talk about concrete examples um, like you just did with the Capital City uh, Charter School, um, I think being able to see success stories in this area is so important as other people try to struggle in moving down the road to success. And um the work that you're doing um, with the book, but also your other advocacy efforts is so important. And I just really am thankful to have you as a guest on the show. Well, thank you so much, Scott. I mean, I really appreciate that more of the mainstream media is reaching out and really promoting the work and seeing this as important work in, in our side. We're at a special time in our country where we're having this conversation nationally. I think it's a great window for us in schools to continue the conversation in terms of talk about it in schools. And also, I will, I will definitely be back. You know, I'm doing this work in the field. I'm putting the work out there. So hopefully I can come back with some more success stories for you. Absolutely. We would love to hear him. My guest today was Tracy Benson, who is an assistant professor at UNC Charlotte. He's also the author and co-author of a book titled Unconscious Bias in Schools, a Developmental Approach to Exploring Race and Racism. Uh, He co-authored that with Sarah Fireman. And we have a link to the book uh, in the text accompanying the podcast so you can um, find the book and uh, hopefully read it. It's a great read. Also, if you want to learn more about Tracy and the work that he does as a professor, as an activist, and also a social justice activist, advocate, you can visit his website, tracyabenson.com. We'll also have that link available in the text accompanying the podcast. Thank you for listening to Teaching Matters. We're produced by WOUB Public Media. You can always listen to us at woub.org slash listen. We're also available through several popular podcasting apps, including Google Play, iTunes, and of course, NPR One. You can contact us Uh, the staff of the podcast with questions, ideas, or comments through our Facebook page. Just go on Facebook, search for Teaching Matters Podcast, and reach out to us. Our audio engineer and associate producer is Adam Rich. I'm Scott Titsworth. Thank you for listening. Thank you.